George Fox Evangelical Seminary in Portland, Oregon, defines spiritual formation as the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, grounded in Scripture and a faith community. And then it goes on to say, educating the mind is not enough. The heart and the will also need spiritual formation. For the fullness and transformation of God to happen in our lives, we have to make space for him to work. To paraphrase one writer, ultimately spiritual formation is not a matter of our doing things. It's a matter of making room for God so that he can live in us. We get to be like Jesus, not by looking at ourselves, but by looking to the one whom Hebrews 12 calls the author and perfecter, the one who completes our faith. Now, as I've already mentioned, most of the emphasis on following Jesus in discipleship is pretty much concentrated on taking classes or studies, but spiritual formation is growth and growth into his likeness has to involve not just our thinking, but our feeling and our practice, or if you like more technical terms, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. Because spiritual formation involves a whole person, not just our head. There has to be an inward as well as an outward focus. The cultivation of our heart and soul and mind, but also our life in the world and our relationship with others. So the question becomes, what does it look like? One image I personally have found helpful is to look at the Mississippi River. Running from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, it's considered one of the largest rivers in the world. It drains approximately 40% of the entire landmass of the United States. But when you look more closely at it, you find that its strength comes not from a single source, but from a combination of more than 7,000 different rivers and streams which feed into it. Richard Foster says one way to think about spiritual formation is by comparing it to the mighty Mississippi of the Spirit, which is made up of six great streams of the spiritual life, each with its place and contribution to the strength of the whole. Those six streams, which I mentioned briefly two weeks ago, and which we're going to be looking at in greater depth in the weeks ahead, are compassion, holiness, prayer, the Word, incarnation, and the Spirit. By nature, each of us will be more attuned to some of those than to others. We may find we're uncomfortable with one or more of them as well. And whether we currently understand and appreciate them all or not, if we take time to look, we'll find that in Scripture, as well as our own lives, each one is important and contributes to the strength of the whole. Each has its place, and each can be exemplified in the life of our Lord Jesus himself. What this means practically Things like, while the word is essential, it makes up just one aspect of the spiritual life. A healthy faith and growth into the image of our Lord will be reflected by more than just Bible study. Without these others, it can easily lead to a bibliolatry or worshiping the word rather than the one who spoke it. 
Prayer is important, very important, but it too is just one area. It alone is not sufficient for a well-rounded and vibrant faith filled with the fullness of God. Without these others, it can lead us to isolation and irrelevance. Compassion is vital, but transformation is reliant on more than just how we treat others. Without the other areas, it can lead to a social gospel, good works divorced from a living faith. Holiness is imperative, but the spiritual life and our transformation involves so much more than concentrating on cultivating me. Like spiritual navel-gazing, without the others, it can lead to a very self-centered, immature faith. Incarnation, being living examples of Christ in the world, is crucial for us. But without the others to strengthen and inform it, it may amount to little more than show and the wearing of masks for others to see and think how good we are. And the presence and working of the Spirit is crucial, but cannot be divorced from the other areas as well if we're truly to be like Him. For without them, it can lead to an emotionalism and spiritual manipulation. When taken together, they provide balance to make up the whole that will affect our thinking, our feeling, and our practice. And the place I want to start this morning is with the stream of the compassionate life. Compassion is an expression of the divine heart. A love that in Scripture consistently cares about the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan and the outcast. It asks the question, who is my neighbor? So that we can then live out the second of the great commandments to love our neighbor as ourselves. It enables us to do the humanly impossible, to love our enemies. You know, one of the signs of maturity in general is that as you move from infancy to childhood to youth to adulthood is the ability to think and care about other people. Infants are the most selfish and self-centered beings in creation. All they think about is when they're hungry, when they need changing, when they want to sleep. It's all about them. But as they grow and become children and then youth and adults, at each stage, they learn that life isn't always about them. There's others around them. Being able to think about and care for others is a sign of maturity. The person who doesn't know this, who continues to live only for themselves, to think everyone exists for their benefit, by definition is immature. So a mature, spiritually mature life is a compassionate life. Because as James said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And that word religion he uses isn't a reference to organized institutional religion. It's a word that can be translated worship. It speaks of practice and piety, observance and devotion. So compassion, it deals with how you treat others, how society treats others, how business practices treat others, how the courts treat others, how government and schools treat others, and As Jesus showed in his parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not just those who are like us, but those who may be different from us as well. 
So the stream of the compassionate life is represented by the banner, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Compassionate life recognizes your faith has to be connected to caring for others. Individually, collectively, how do you fulfill the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? And so two key ideas to compassion to begin with are justice and righteousness. They're tied together with it. In the Old Testament especially, they are the foundation upon which society and life together were to be built. Without them, society itself could not stand. That's why it's been the people of faith leading the charge in addressing issues such as slavery, apartheid, human trafficking, homelessness, hunger, orphanages, hospitals, schools. And at times, compassion has appeared radical. You know, when the Britain ended the slave trade and slavery throughout the British Empire, they reimbursed, the crown reimbursed slave owners in the West Indies for the value of their freed slaves. It's a practice that Abraham Lincoln himself unsuccessfully promoted here in the U.S. But there was a man named John Woolman, an 18th century American merchant and itinerant preacher, who said that wouldn't have gone nearly far enough, that justice... God's justice demanded much more. And so what he advocated and what he got the Quaker body to adopt was that not not that the slave owners should be reimbursed, but the freed slaves should be paid for all the work they had ever done. That, he said, is justice and righteousness for the poor and the hurting and the outcast. And I'm not talking about a social gospel here based on good works rather than the word of God, but rather fulfillment of it in our contact with the world. When we're talking about issues of justice and righteousness, we're talking about the heart and the nature of God and his concern for mankind. It's part of who God is. The psalmist said, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Righteous and justice, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, it says. More than that, there are a few ways to describe the life of Jesus better than as a compassionate life. That's what we're going to look at next week. But for today, we're going to talk about justice and righteousness because we're speaking the language of the Old Testament prophets. You can't get away from it if you read through them. We tend to think of the prophets in terms of foretelling the future, but their message of judgment was based on how people were treating each other today. And in fact, in Hebrew, the words judgment and justice come from the same source. Perhaps none made this clearer, though, than the prophet Amos, who was among the earliest of the Old Testament prophets. That book which bears his name is a clear call for justice, for righteousness, for we, us to treat one another with compassion. He lived, he ministered in around 750 B.C. It was a time of relative peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel, while the major powers of the region, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, were preoccupied with other things. It was a time which, even as Lola mentioned a minute ago, which for many 
Their understanding of the spiritual life was performance-based. Check off a box, practice certain rituals, observe the Sabbath and the festivals, bring your sacrifices, your offerings, attend worship. As long as we do that, they believed, they were right with God, that he would be happy with them and they could get on with life. So they kept the Sabbath, they went to the temple, they brought their offerings, they sang their songs of worship, all the things that good religious people were supposed to do. And they thought God was blessing them for it. That their prosperity was a sign of his pleasure in keeping all these things. But they were going through the motions. Their hearts weren't in it. It was nothing but empty ritual and had no impact in how they were living with each other. And feeling that they were enjoying God's blessings, Amos' message was instead they were actually storing up his judgment. And this is what many continue to think of when they think of the spiritual life today. What we do, going through the motions, keeping the rules, attending church, read your Bible, pray, give, serve, things like that, and then God's going to be happy with you. And it's not that different than what you often hear on the TV by those who proclaim prosperity is your right as a child of God, so claim it as evidence of his blessing and his happiness for you. But as Israel learned, if that's our spiritual commitment, things we do without a heart of compassion, it becomes meaningless. So as the prophet Micah declared, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? With the Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I do all these things? Is that what God wants for me? And his answer is no. Instead, he says, he's shown you, O man, what's good and what God requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here's the danger. If your spiritual life is based on performance, maintaining practices, doing the right things with no regard for a right heart, or what your actions, what impact they're going to have on others, then it can lead to the most serious of consequences in society and daily life. You look through history, and you find that any time that happens, when people begin to justify the most serious abuses of the powerless and the less fortunate, because they're doing all the performances that God expects of them. And Amos thunders against that. When you read and study scripture, it should raise questions in your mind. Whenever you read it, there should be questions that come. How does this apply What would God say to me in my situation? So let me raise a few questions that most of us probably would prefer not to think about as they might relate to Amos. I'm not giving answers. I'm just raising questions. In Amos 2.6, it describes a materialistic lifestyle controlled by rampant greed, a desire for things, no concern for those who might be hurt or taken advantage of in our pursuit of stuff. The charge is, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. To raise a question, how does it apply? Might we not wonder what Amos would say to our current reality 
of wage stagnation for workers where from 1979 to 2007, the average income of American workers grew 5%, while those at the top grew 230%? Or about Nike, who will pay about $2.50 for labor to make a shoe, 20 cents an hour, and then they turn around and charge us $200? Or Apple pays about $30 to make an iPhone, and then turns around and charges over 600 And we buy them because we want them? What about justice for the workers? Do we have a responsibility? I'm just raising the question. We may not think too much of the Occupy movement from a couple years ago and their slogan, we're the 99%, but they raise questions about the distribution and concentration of wealth in our society. Do we really believe the ones at the top of the corporate ladder are worth so much more than the ones who are doing the work? And speaking from a purely historic point of view, whenever wealth has been concentrated in the hands of the few, it's led to societal decline and abuse. Amos 2.6 goes on to speak of an economic corruption Injustice in the courts. Those with the financial means were using the system to get their way and buy their way out of problems. It says, they trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Again, if Amos lived today, if he had anything to say to our society, where statistics show that people of color are consistently sentenced to harsher penalties than Howley's for committing the same crime where banks receive a slap on the wrist while people lose their homes to foreclosure created by the unjust practices they set up. And I don't know if they still use it, but remember remember a couple years ago, before the Wall Street crash, traders and those who helped create the economic meltdown called themselves masters of the universe? Amos said, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Immorality. What would Amos say to a society supporting a $14 billion a year sex industry and where human trafficking remains largely silent? He says, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Garments which were supposed to be returned at night because the poor, that's all they had for blankets. A callous disregard to those in need. Again, what might Amos say to us about the growing problem of hunger and homelessness for families and children in Hawaii and issues relating to the care and treatment of immigrants and refugees? Just raising questions, not giving answers. But there are statistics we can easily overlook. So let me put a name on it, taken from an article by Doug Sanders and quoted by Gary Thomas. If you walk through the wealthier sections of Los Angeles, two things mark the prosperity, dogs and domestics. Rosa Diaz came to the United States from El Salvador at the time he wrote this, less than a year ago. And as a housekeeper, Rosa, a well-educated young woman, is struggling with her humble situation. It's still very strange, she says, that I'm doing a job like this. I once thought I would end up having a domestic worker, but now I am one. In addition to following Rosa, the domestic Sanders follows Custer, a Los Angeles dog owned by a successful Hollywood screenwriter. And he says the comparisons are astonishing. 
Rosa makes $225 a week to work from dawn until late evening. Some domestics get paid more, of course. A few of the lucky ones get $450 or even $500. But Rosa also knows that some start out at about $80 to $100. Compare this to the average dog walker in Los Angeles who's typically paid $200 a week. Rosa's salary is such that she can afford just $50 a week towards rent, so she shares a small two-bedroom apartment with three other adult women. Custer, when this was written, was staying at Canyon View Ranch, a canine spa, boarding retreat, and training center that advertises itself as a country club for dogs. Custer owner pays $70 a day, $490 a week for the privilege, almost 10 times the cost of what Rosa pays for her large lodgings. Rosa's tight salary allows her to spend about $50 a week on groceries. Custer eats pretty well. At Canyon View Ranch, the average meal contains lamb and rice. But most owners leave special instructions. Some get special vegetarian diets, raw foods, six supplements at a time that have to be crushed up and blended. Some want food heated up. Some want gravy poured over the top. It costs a lot, but the owners say it's worth it. Custer is treated to $40 a month dog shampoo. Rosa makes do with a bottle purchased at a drugstore. Los Angeles dog owners typically pay $100 a month in vet fees, even for healthy dogs. Rosa's salary doesn't include insurance, medical, or dental coverage. Custer gets to ride in a car or limo. Rosa rides to work on the bus. A few years ago, the Human Rights Watch organization released a report which was meant to draw attention to the widespread physical and economic abuse and mistreatment of thousands of domestic workers and diplomatic households in the United States. Not a single newspaper in Los Angeles chose to carry the story. The very next day that their article came out, The Los Angeles Times began coverage of a trial in Los Angeles of a man charged with killing a woman's small white dog in an act of road rage. In the aftermath, local residents were furious and they raised $175,000 to find the dog's killer. So the story on the abuse of thousands of people doesn't make the news page. While the killing of a dog unleashed several weeks worth of front page stories on animal abuse. Now, I love dogs. We have two dogs at home. But when I read that article, it raises questions. What is my response? What does justice and righteousness demand when my dog may be treated better than my neighbor? And Jesus remembered to find a neighbor as the one in need. Difficult, complicated issues, which is why, like I've said more than once, I'm simply raising questions. Types of issues that the church historically has wrestled with. What is our response to the needs of those we see around us? That's the compassionate life. What good is a spiritual life that neither helps us draw near to God nor the people around us? In Amos, the result was that the very things people were trusting in as evidence of spiritual vitality, God says he's going to reject them. In Amos 5, it says, I hate... I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. They may be religious, but they weren't spiritual. Form without substance. As one writer put it rather directly, there's an increasing interest today in spiritual Christian spirituality, including the prayer life. But any growth in prayer without a corresponding concern and demonstrated compassion for the down and out is a sham, according to the teachings of Jesus. That was the message of Malachi. God said, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. For I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. What follows, what Amos 5.24 states, is the key verse of the entire book of Amos. It's clarion call. It summarizes his message, but the message of all the prophets. God thunders from Zion, let justice roll down and write like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Richard Foster said, each major area of Israel's liturgical worship, its festivals, sacrifices, music, has been evaluated and soundly condemned. But why? Why would these acts of devotion be so utterly spurned? Was it because of ritual impurity? Was it because of compromise with the Canaanite religious practices? Was it because of a lack of zeal in religious exercises? No, no, and no. One reason and one reason alone accounted for God's forthright rejection of their religious devotion. All of the festivals, all of the sacrifices, all of the instruments and music of worship failed because they were not accompanied by acts of justice and righteousness. And so, he says, the word of the Lord thunders forth, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now that, for Israelites, that would have been a very graphic image. They lived in the desert. They knew the characteristics of the stream bed, the wadi. Much of the year, the wadi was bone dry of no benefit to anyone. But when the rains came, when the first rushing wall of water flowed with such force, it came that anyone or anything in its way would be swept away. And so Amos calls for justice to roll down like that raging torrent of freshly fed wadi. And yet he says, unlike the water of the wadi, which often dwindles to nothing, this righteousness is an never-ending stream. It flows day after day, year after year, under good circumstances and bad. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an never-ending stream. For God, you see, demands something more revolutionary than festivals and sacrifices and worship songs. And that something more is righteousness. Impartiality in judicial decisions, equity in business dealings, justice for the poor and the oppressed, because social righteousness is a divine mandate. Liturgical life can never be divorced from it. That is the message of Amos, he says. It was not a popular message then, and it's not one today. Now, I know typically in many evangelical circles, we get around dealing with these kind of issues and concerns by saying that's a social gospel. Good works cut off from the power of the good news. And so we focus on evangelism, reaching the lost, and personal holiness. But we can't separate the two. Jesus didn't. If our gospel and our spiritual lives don't reflect God's compassion for the hurts and the needs of others, 
why should anyone bother to listen to us? As I said, I'll be looking at six areas of spiritual formation. Compassion is just one. But no one's going to care what we know. They want to see how much we care. So if you want to know how the compassionate life, things like social justice, connects with spiritual formation, what part they really can play in our growth into the image of Christ, there are all kinds of examples I could give. People I could cite. Martin Luther King. Florence Nightingale, Mother Teresa, Dorothy Day, Desmond Tutu, William and Catherine Booth, Albert Schweitzer, Harriet Tubman, Susan B. Anthony, William Wilberforce, so many people lived out compassionate life. Too many, too often, we hear of the failures of individuals and religious institutions, people becoming skeptical of them as unnecessary. But historically, it's been churches and believers living out the stream of the compassionate life, joining together, being at the forefront of things like fighting poverty, ending slavery, apartheid, fighting child labor, sweatshops, ending human trafficking. It's been churches starting job training centers, community development projects, homeless shelters, hunger ministries, adoption agencies, orphanages, senior care homes, hospitals, schools, oh, by the way, Sunday school, originally started by churches whose children were working in the sweatshops during the week, and the only time they had a chance to better themselves was Sunday morning. And so they started school for them to learn how to read and write. That's the origins of Sunday school. Clinics offering alternatives to abortion, prison ministry. If you look at the history of virtually all major social movement and services. Their origin isn't with the government. It's not with the businesses. It's not with the educational community. It's with believers and churches who took seriously this call to let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And if we're going to become like Jesus, a compassionate life must be in evidence. More than giving money, it means getting involved and speaking up. And it's things like that that's exactly what God called for when he thundered from Zion about letting justice roll. It's a hard message of the prophets. Next, year, next week, we'll look at the life of Jesus, the compassionate life he displayed, and how that affects us. But we do need to ask the questions, at least. How are we to treat our neighbor? Neighbor Jesus defined as the one in need. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we close today, we thank you that you have shown us justice and righteousness and so much more in calling us to be compassionate towards one another and to those beyond these walls. May we live out the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We thank you for his glory, which shines into our hearts through faith. Amen. Thank you.